again, going back to silver lining of COVID, it's allowed everyone to step back and really, instead of saying no, that work won't work, figuring out how can this work? How can this help not just me, but you know, other people in the business. We we did, a, obviously we had a lot of staging uh, jobs. We created income for the production company. We created income for the marketing company. We created income yeah. for the players, the band. It was just such a magical time. And instead of us always being so focused on this is what our profit margin has, has to be, we were just like, how do we make this work for everybody? So we cost, cover yeah. our costs. Everybody makes a little bit of money and the artists feel like they actually have a career to come back to. Welcome to the Impact Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Cartavera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. Today is episode 65, and our guest is Billy Joe Asen. And the title today is Ecosystem Leadership, Thriving Through Disruption by Working Together. Didn't know this topic was coming with Billy Joe. Billy Joe has worked in the events business for most of her life, even starting when she was 15 and embarked on a singing career, singing at festivals. She now manages them, produces them, coordinates them. But interestingly enough, something that she brought in her leadership during COVID was what she calls ecosystem thinking. It's a fundamental mind shift where you're focused on helping the ecosystem to thrive and not just your own individual success. It's a fascinating conversation. So listen in and learn a different way to look at business and success and collaboration. Welcome to the Impact Leadership Podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. We are back here for the Impact Leadership Podcast, and our guest today is Billy Joe Asen, who is coming to us from a beautiful place, Vancouver, British Columbia. I think this is our first guest who's actually coming to us from Canada, in that we've had some guests from Canada, but they were not there. They live other places now, even across the world. So Billy Joe is interesting because this summer, Craig and I interviewed someone who started their life in festivals. And I said, that's the first person we'll never have someone who's done that before. (laughs) And here comes Billy Joe. She started in the festival business when she was 18 years old. She's, she is a master at creating events and experiences. And obviously that's taken a bit of a, a hit during COVID. So we're going to hear about some of the ways she has adapted and pivoted. She now owns and runs four businesses. I know she's involved in a nonprofit as well. So we're looking forward to hear what Billy Joe is going to share with us about experiences and brands and, of course, leadership. So welcome, Billy Joe. Yeah, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to have you. So Billy Joe, give us a little bit of the the background story that gets you here today. Yeah, so I actually come from a very, very rural place in Canada called Caramias. My graduating class was 27 people. Wow. Majority, oh yeah, it was very small. Majority of people that were born and raised in Karameas end up staying there because majority of their families have 
ranches or orchards and they just kind of take over the family business and keep going. Uh, my dad was a trucker. My mom was a waitress, literally grew up on the side of a road, <laughs> like a country <laughs> song. And I always, always, always just loved everything about music. And it's funny, I always tell people that I kind of was meant to be in the entertainment space in one form or another. My dad has photos of me when I was about six, seven years old. And me and my best friend, Kayla, would go and color coloring book photos and then go through my grandma's trailer park and we would sell them for 25 cents. And that would be the admission into my concert that night. <laughs> I would sing to Shania Twain tracks. <laughs> That's awesome. To produce, I feel. Um, and so obviously that evolved a little bit. Uh, and <clears throat> there was a really, really large festival. It's no longer in, in existence called Merritt Mount Music Fest. And it was so big at the point, it was the largest in the country. And our little town would literally shut down. The restaurants would shut down, the bank would shut down and stay closed for Marymount Music Fest and everyone would go out to it. And wow. it was a family tradition, a town tradition. Everybody went out. It was, it was huge. It was, a, it was really a lifestyle brand. It was my first intro as a fan to what a brand in music could be. And so fast forward a little bit. Here I am wanting to be this famous singer, having this big dream, going and playing at all the fairs and rodeos that I could. And my sister sent in a demo tape of me to Merritt Mount Music Fest mm. and just thought, she's going to get a slot. She's going to get a slot. So I get a phone call and it's this guy with an accent. He's, Billy Joe Brass, this is Dylan Adams on the phone. I'd like to invite you to sing at Merritt Mount Music Fest. And I started laughing and I was like, no, I literally thought it was one of my good friends. <laughs> and I hung up the phone because I didn't even know I had. Oh, come on. I thought that only phone. happened in the movies, Billy Joe. Nope. I thought that only happened in the movies. All honesty, this actually happened. So he calls me back and he's like, Billy Joe, this Don Adams calling. And he's American, obviously. Spent a lot of time in the South, originally from LA. And I was like, okay. And he's like, I'll tell you what, here's my number. You give me a call back and we can see if you want to play the show. And I call back and it's like, good morning, Active Mountain. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> I do? So he ended up giving me a slot to perform. And I opened for Loretta Lynn on a Sunday. Wow. And this is my dad's favorite story because I was kind of upset. I was like, oh, I'm opening for some old lady. I didn't even get a I had no idea who she was. I just wow. My parents listened to Pink Floyd and Leonard Skinner and ACDC <laughs> and Tim McGraw and you know <laughs> Terry Clark. I didn't know any of the older, older stuff. Right. So I go out and I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna nail this. And I sing all Martina McBride songs. So like very high octave. And I'm like, I'm gonna go and give it my all. So at the end of the show, I go backstage. And I'm like, hi, Mr. Adams. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Didn't really know where it was going to go. Fast forward, he invited me down to Vancouver to actually meet with a producer. And he started a management company based around me as an artist. Wow. That's so fascinating, Billy Joe. You're 15 years old. You've just performed at this big concert on a very large stage, open for Loretta Lynn. And... This is still early, though. So what comes next in this music journey? So we kept in touch. I was 15 years old at the time. We kept in touch back and forth. 
Uh, and finally, when I was 18, he said, you know, it's time to come out, come out to Vancouver. So my, <laughs> my dad was not a big fan of the concept. Uh, and my parents had divorced by this point. And so it was like, dad, authority household. There's no way you're moving to the city and starting this pipe dream. It's not happening. So I packed up a garbage bag of clothes. I knew someone who I had worked for in the Okanagan who actually was now in Vancouver. I rented a room for $500 a month and not a word of a lie. For six months, I slept on the garbage bag of clothes until I could finally afford like a little tiny mattress to sleep on. And then I would go and take things from the roommates when they didn't want them, like a lamp desk and this, that, and the other thing. And I wasn't even of age to work in a bar or anything. So I was making wow. next to no money in the most expensive city in Canada, trying to, again, become famous. <laughs> so fast forward as the whole process goes through and I'm recording and going down to Nashville and man, I have the utmost respect for any artist on the planet. It is the hardest job in the world. It's so hard to be a human being and still be a product and to be mm. able to mentally and emotionally separate those two. And I sucked at it. Turns out I really liked the business side of it. So mm. I was not only recording, I was then uh, waitressing in a breakfast restaurant, working at a um, trucking company doing like data entry i would do hostessing at night at the place wow. that i was staying they owned a You're bar a hustler. i was just trying to make every type of end meet but on the days that i wasn't at the trucking company i was actually interning with the festival hmm. and they did a lot of different tours and stuff during the year so i was volunteering my time and just trying to learn everything but the funny thing is that I'd always come in and I'd be like, okay, here's what we got to do for Q1. This is what we got to do for Q2. This is, and I had a whole business plan around every single thing we were going to do. So it naturally just kept coming to me being very entrepreneurial. Then fast forward again, EDM was starting to kind of break a little bit, not a ton. It was still very underground at this time. And I went to the owner of the festival and I said, Claude, this is this is the future of music. You need to do an EDM festival. And the, the festivals and his festivals in quite a bit of trouble at that time due to just some business decisions that were made. And so I said, this is going to save you. you. You need to do an EDM festival. And he didn't understand it. He was like, DJs on a stage that's never going to take off. Not a chance. And at that time, DJs were super cheap. and <laughs> Production value wasn't super high. And still, it was it was a pretty hard no for me. So <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, fine. So I ended up getting uh, a job with the arena here in catering and doing, um, running all of their back of house stuff. So any soft concert dates, all of their restaurants, their suites, everything else. And when the concert stuff would come in, I was learning everything I could about what's considered a hard ticket date, meaning that there's X amount of tickets to be sold at once. What's fascinating to me about this, Billy Joe, is you are just modeling for us the idea that entrepreneurship is about learning and about sometimes going through the hard stuff. I mean, you you picked up your life when you were a young kid, you moved to another city, you're trying to figure it out, you're working a bunch of different jobs, you're sleeping in garbage bags. And, and I mean, you live that entrepreneurial journey as a teenager. So certainly, you've had a lot of experience at this point. So what comes next for you on this journey? Don, who was now my music manager and the promoter of Merritt Mount Music Fest, came to me and he said, Billy, I know you want a festival. 
Float is going to offer you to take over Merit. And it was way more of a liability than an asset at that point. I would have no idea even where to start. So that was a pass. So then he came to me a few months later and he said, I found a little show site, 25 grand in each. It, you know, first money in, first money out, we'll go down, we'll do it. And it was this cute little uh, show site in Bellingham, Washington. So I went and looked at it and I'm like, oh man, okay, let's do it. Beginning my education of music festivals. If anybody tells you it's only going to take 25 grand, they're <laughs> lying, don't do it. <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't ill-intentioned by any means on Don's behalf either, but he honestly thought that that's what it was going to be. So we start, you know, making this plan and I'm working at the arena and I'm going back and forth and so many hours and I'm still trying to cut a record and get everything done. And finally... I realized I'm like, oh man, I, I think I need a US visa. I'm I'm not American and we're gonna go on sale in the US. I I have to legally be able to work there. And obviously, weird light bulb. <laughs> we ran the festival, uh, lost a lot of money, mm. but enough money for me to not be totally crippled by it but comfortable enough to say, okay, I've learned all the hard lessons. I'll do this again. Okay. So to say the least here, I was again, getting another massive education being like, I can totally do this. But in my mind being like, okay, so <laughs> I got to go to Nashville and make some friends. Uh, so I did, I went and I rented an apartment in Nashville for a month. I knew just enough to get in the rooms, but not enough to know who I was talking to. And just by chance, it worked out. I, I was supported by some major heavy hitters in Nashville. Um, from that festival, I got hired on to build a brand festival for an artist, which from there ended up owning that festival, which is now Extreme Mud Fest in Canada's largest mud music festival. Hmm. Uh, we produced over 20 festivals across North America. All's flowing good in the hood. Um, I'm burning out on both ends, let's be honest, because... When you build a festival, you're basically building a city and then you're tearing it down and you can only do so many of them. And so from here, I'm again, fast forwarding to now about three years ago, I'm completely burnt out. I'm 250 days a year on the road. I'm coming wow. home. I'm a shell of a human. <laughs> My husband one day takes me and we sit on a patio with a bottle of rosé and he just said, honey, I don't know how this is going to be sustainable. I will back you on whatever you want to do, but you got to make sure you want to do it. So I just went through a, a really uh, trying business partnership on one project and, and just feeling super defeated. So I decided, okay, I was going to get out of that partnership. So I did. I went and ran Mudfest, which I love 110%. It's my baby festival. And then I decided to not take on any more projects for a little while. I took off to Thailand. I did a creative trip to, you know, reestablish my non-negotiables, what it was going to look like. I'd reached a point in my career where I was really known for festivals. So that was a great thing. Work would always be there if that's what I chose to do. Came out of that and then ended up, I, to cut a long story, I was recruited um, to actually go in-house with BC Place Stadium. And after that, after a very long interview process, they ended up giving me the entertainment consulting contract for all the entertainment in the stadium. 
Wow. Uh, which was very exciting. So the first uh, major tour we brought in was Rolling Stones. So 2020 was like- a pretty good start. It was, and I was so excited. I was like, oh my gosh. Of course, we didn't buy the show, but being in a building is another thing of negotiating with promoters. So Billy Joe, clearly you've been on this journey of learning, failing, learning, burning out, but here we come to 2020 and talk to us about this year. 2020, like I am just so focused. I've got stadium, Mudfest is rocking. We've got a Texas festival. I'm feeling the top of my game. Here I am flying to London to close one of the biggest deals of my life. <laughs> I'm on the plane. I get a text from the person I'm having the meeting with saying, oh no, headliners not showing up to this festival. This COVID thing seems to be real. Might as well still come to London and have a cocktail. And I'm like, oh, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Then 10 minutes later, he texts me and says, we're back on, festival's back on. I'll see you for dinner tomorrow night at seven. So taking the red eye to London, ready to cut this deal, show up for dinner, Festival's canceled. COVID's a real thing. Cut the deal the next morning to still do what we were negotiating to do. And then, you know, it's it's threats of the border shutting down and everything else. So I'm scrambling, just trying to get a flight home because I'm like, I'm going to be stuck in London now. I can't live in London. Yeah. Uh, I get on a plane. I come home, put my head under the covers, quarantine for two weeks because we had to, thinking, hey, this is going to last two months most it's <laughs> this is not a long-term thing I, re I remember those days when we thought that <laughs> right it was like everyone was like oh yeah i can do I'm, I'm enjoying my time my downtime of not going to the office well that was not the case because now we're in reality where festivals and mass gatherings are not possible so <laughs> here I am sitting there being like, okay, so now I'm canceling festivals across the board. Mm. What am I going to do next? And I looked at it honestly as an opportunity to start to create some of those other companies and divisions and accept some new partnerships that had been on the table for quite some time. And, and um, one of the most exciting things we were able to do is I joined as a partner on a management company. Again, coming from being an artist, I feel I have a very unique perspective and understanding where your headspace will be as an artist and how to get you out of that to build a brand, to be successful, and then obviously touring and buying. Um, and so we ended up throwing the first Canadian hotel festival, which we did in Calgary. We rented out a hotel, 100 balcony suites that looked onto a courtyard. And we, we got the rooms for a hundred bucks. We sold them for 400. It came with four tickets and we did a three and a half hour long festival in the middle of the courtyard and we sold it out in a week and a half. Wow. How cool is that? Well, that's some good thinking. So is this like a, like an embassy suites type of thing that has the center courtyard? Yeah. Same. It was called the Ramada, but okay. same sort of thing. Anything that, you know, really everybody's looking down on mm -hmm. the courtyard, you can definitely pull it off. It was what Unique a great idea. Oh, man, it was one of the most special festivals I think I've ever done. Huh. Mostly because we all took so much stuff for granted. We, you know, we knew we could go to any pub and go see live music. We could go to any festival we wanted if we could afford it. Concerts were coming through two, three times a week. Heck, we could even go and 
invite more than 20 friends over to our house and throw a party. <laughs> when right. all of that is taken away and our ability to interact with other human beings on just this like intrinsic level of enjoyment and having fun, right. when that's all stripped away and you're kind of isolated from everyone to be able to safely bring people back together again, there yeah. was not an ill intention in the entire hotel. Everybody like was teary eyed. The artists were teary eyed. We had a bunch of industry people show up. It was one of the biggest wins of my career to say the least. Well, Billy Joe, let's talk about the process of innovation. You know, you, you said you come home, you, you self quarantined for two weeks. You're, you know, kind of under the covers and everything shut down, but you, you end up coming up with this idea, but how did you get there? Because that's the, you know, everybody can say, I came up with this idea, but how did you move from, oh boy, what are we going to do to, we're going to create something that's different and it'll be amazing. Yeah. So I, again, not living in what our current reality was, I thought, okay, I've got time where I'm not getting on a plane. I'm not, I, I don't necessarily have much stuff to move forward because the whole world is paused right now, especially in in my world. We're just all kind of sitting and waiting. And I'd had this concept. So I'll go back a little bit to that phase where I was totally burnt out 250 days a year on the road. And I love festivals. I love music, but that was just not sustainable for any human being. And I kept thinking, how am I going to scale? So I went and I decided, okay, I've got to rethink my company. And this was something I was thinking about for a while. And at the time, my company was named 542 Entertainment because the first festival I built, my most expensive education was on the 542 road to Mount Baker. So a story was tied (laughs) to the name. But anyone with a little bit of marketing background knows that's not good for SEO. So search engine optimization. And I thought when someone's looking to do something for a festival, or to build a festival, what are they going to do? They're going to go and Google how to build a festival, festival companies, anything to do with that. So lo and behold, the name, the festival company was available and I bought it. <laughs> wow. And okay. That was just sheer luck. Yeah. I think I spent 500 bucks on it. And so I bought it and it was in the back of my mind on, okay, I need to be able to scale my company. And how am I going to do that without taking massive overhead a ton of, you know, different employees, because I didn't want to do that either. That wasn't the lifestyle I wanted to live. And I thought, well, what if I just did a roll up of all the best entrepreneurs I knew, and I made them entrepreneurs under one brand, and we can all take a portion of what we bring in, put it back into marketing, blow this whole brand up, and everybody is an entrepreneur. So from there, um, so that was on the service aspect. So um, video, uh, digital marketing, public relations, anything that was physical human pieces was all done through strategic partnership. And then we had a, a rev share. Then on the product side, I cut a wholesale deal on signage. Surprising signage is a massive, massive line item in any event. And when you're locally printing it, you can have upwards of a 2000% difference of that and what it's actually coming from a wholesaler. It's wow. insane, the margins in signage. So I cut a wholesale deal with uh, a banner and signage company. I cut a wholesale deal with a scrim company, which are the banners that hang off of the stage that need certain flow through. I cut a wholesale deal with a wristbanding company and a wholesale deal with a credentials company so that I could still have my markup, not have to invest into the equipment and still be competitive and under every other price. Hmm. So this way now I have 13 different divisions 
So we can not only be just a one-stop shop, but now we can service our competitors and be able to bring this you know, world of expertise and this entire team under one roof in less price than it would take for them to do it anywhere else. So wow. that was the concept kind of going into 2020. And I was just going to kind of slowly build this out and take my time because I got all these cool things going at the stadium and I got cool festivals. Well, now the world shut down. I have nothing to do but work. So, or to innovate, I guess, uh, would be the word for it. And so I started doing this and I started building it out and I got it all ready. And I keep thinking, man, the world's got to open up soon here. I've got to be able to actually announce this company and say that it's here. Well, it went on and on and on. And so here I am. And I still actually haven't fully announced the festival company. People know about it, but we haven't went through our full, full launch. And a friend of mine, who's one of the, the largest stars in the country, um, he also has a management company and they're doing really, really, really well. And he and I have been talking for about two years to come in and, and join him on the management side. Well, the really bad partnership that I got out of that was burning me out and really, really bad was actually on the management side. So I also was kind of like, man, I don't think I ever want to go back into management. I don't know if I want to do this. But I trusted this new potential partner. And with COVID being there, I had nothing but time on my hands to go and say, okay, yeah, like, let's, let's give this a shot. So I'm on a call. Uh, I make it very, like, such a priority to be on all these different industry calls. It's good for personal brand. It's good for knowledge. It's just good to see what everybody's doing. And they had a presentation from a ticketing company. And this guy comes on and he's talking about this concept. And it was his concept was, okay, you know, you can put a cover band in a courtyard and you can sell tickets to the rooms. What does everybody think? And I'm sitting there being like, as a promoter, are my margins going to work? Like staging, production, artist fees. It just doesn't look like this is something sustainable. But the fun thing is, is I now had a management company and I had this wonderful roster of artists that were all charting and all biting at the bit to get out and play somewhere. It's a mental health thing for them at the end of the day is to be able <laughs> yeah, to do right. what they love to do. So I thought, man, I can do this as a management company. We can launch our management company doing something very, very unique and very, very different using my festival expertise and this concept and our artists. And so that's what we did. We ended up bringing on um, a couple of sponsors, which were phenomenal. That covered our initial overhead. We kind of just said, you know what? Our overhead's covered. So if we don't sell out, we can give away the rooms. You know, this is a brand new thing. And like I said, we sold out in a week and a half and we made it a festival and it was a proven concept. And it, yeah, it was one of wow. my fa most favorite things, but it was really just... Again, going back to silver lining of COVID, it's allowed everyone to step back and really, instead of saying, no, that wor won't work, figuring out how can this work? How can this help not just me, but you know, other people in the business? We, we did, a, obviously we had a lot of staging uh, jobs. We created income for the production company. We created income for the marketing company. We created income yeah. for the players, the band. It was just such a magical time. And, instead of us always being so focused on this is what our profit margin has has to be we were just like how do we make this work for everybody so we co cover yeah. our cost everybody makes a little bit of money and the artists feel like they actually have a career to come back to that's awesome i love that it, it's not 
it's basically taking it beyond what was me, you know, how do I, how do I take care of myself to how do I take care of my whole ecosystem here? Very good. And that's the beauty of the music business right now. I, I find a lot of people are, even the big guys are getting creative of taking care of the ecosystem. Here's the thing. If production companies go under because they don't have rent subsidy and they can't pay for the warehouse or the lease on all the equipment, yeah, it doesn't matter how many artists we have or how many festivals can come back. We don't have any stages. If all of the festivals go under or all of the promoters can't pay their yeah. bills and have to go get jobs, there's nowhere for anyone to play. There's no one where for yeah. anyone to play, no artists make any money and it, kills the entire ecosystem of entertainment. So right now it's wow. not about focusing on us as individuals. It's about how do we make our industry survive as a whole so mm. that we can come out of the other side of this bigger and better than ever. Because when the restrictions do lift and it is safe to do so, the music business is going to go off. Yeah. So, so Billy Joe, you raised something really interesting about the ecosystem. How prevalent is that thinking within the industry? Because I think that's one of the biggest misses during COVID. Yeah. Too many or industries, people, even individuals have not thought about the impact of their decisions that are pretty self-focused versus looking out for the ecosystem and the economy in general. Yeah, you know, it, it really comes down to the individual person. And I think being educated on how everything comes together. I, I wish everybody actually understood just economics 101. <laughs> no, these things work. <laughs> right. But, you know, obviously the music business, we're the first to hit, be hit, we'll be the last to recover by far. But being able to take a step back, look, we all have to pay our bills. So that's that's one part of it. But we don't, if you've managed your money correctly and you can survive for a little bit, it's important to support the entire ecosystem. And that doesn't just go to, you know, the music business. If you're looking at, for example, here in Canada, we've got a ton of subsidies. So um, we had the Canadian emergency response benefit where every Canadian could get $2,000 a month just by applying for it. And if your industry was hit by COVID, then you could get that if your income had stopped. Um, and, and in some industries, like, absolutely, that's fantastic. But what was happening is a lot of people, specifically in rural marketplaces, were taking that $2,000 because it's not expensive to live there. And they're like, hmm, I don't really want to go to work because I don't have to go to work because mm -hmm. my bills are paid and I'd rather be home doing this and the government's paying for it anyways. What they're not realizing is that that's taxpayer money. And who pays those taxes? Well, it's the larger companies. Well. And that can be, corp when people think corporations, they think, you know, Fortune 500 companies. I'm a corporation. All of my companies are corporations. They're not massive. Mm -hmm. But if we hit a certain tax break after that amount, or sorry, a certain income, after that amount, we're taxed at a certain amount. Meaning that when we're taxed at that, it actually caps us to take that money and be able to properly reinvest it to then create more jobs to then again, continue to build on the ecosystem. So when you're looking at restaurants, for example, of people saying, well, like, I think that it's great that we've been able to have rent subsidy for restaurants. One of the big things over COVID that we looked at was, okay, we have to go and we have to make sure that we are doing takeout. And I'm not a takeout person, I love to cook, but we're doing takeout at least a couple nights a week so that we can support these local businesses, yeah. these local restaurants, so that they can continue to employ these people when they come out of this. Because yeah. if they don't survive, now what's going to happen 
is all of these people that are working in hospitality, not all of them, a lot of people have wonderful, wonderful careers in hospitality, but I would say probably 70 to 75% of them are trying to go to school or trying to build a business themselves or just trying to supplement to survive to get to what the next piece is. Now, all of a sudden, if you take that all out of our ecosystem so people can't go in and make that money because there's no restaurants to survive that have survived this, yeah. well, now those people may not have the ability to go to school. They may not have the ability to sink into a new business. Okay. They may turn around, go to substance. They may, there's so many different things. And then again, they're relying on government subsidy, which affects our entire ecosystem, which affects taxes from a personal and corporate standpoint. It's a whole system that keeps going that people don't seem to put two and two together. That blows my mind. And well, that is- But most people are thinking about themselves, right? They, huh. they think, oh, well, you know, if I pay that person a little extra, that, that just means I'm not gonna be able to eat out as much or, or something like that. They don't realize the impact in the entire community. Well, there has to be there has to be a mindset shift. I mean, and I'll keep using music as an example because that's what I'm in. But mm -hmm. if agencies, for example, agencies are who go and sell the artists for X amount of price based on how many tickets they could sell historically. So whether an artist is worth five thousand dollars or whether they're worth a million dollars, all comes down to the amount of tickets that they can sell. Cool, mm -hmm. I get it. Now, here we go going back into hopefully opening up, say 2021, even 2022, where we can do go into it. But say, we're not going to all of a sudden be opened up to now you can have a 40,000 person music festival and you can put 55,000 people in a stadium and voila, COVID's gone. It's not gonna happen that way. It's going to be scaled. So now you have a festival that used to be able to run at say, 10,000 people or 15,000 based on how big their land was, but now they can only run at 2,500. Mm. Well, the fans have an expectation of a certain level of talent. <clears throat> the talent has an expectation of a certain amount of money. <laughs> right. The festival has an expectation or an understanding of what they need to make to just cover their bottom line. So now if nobody budges, if the talent price cannot come down, there's no way for the festival to go up except for charging the consumer more, which they are also in an economic crunch right, right now. If we can't do that and we can't get the talent in, then we can't hire the staging crews. We can't hire the vendors. We can't hire the bartenders. We can't support local charities that you know are coming out and running our gates. We can't have a ticketing company. We can't do any of it. Everything is dependent on the other things. So people have to really change their mindset of saying, okay, my artist is a headliner. I get that. What is the max amount of money that this festival can make? Let's take a look at it realistically and work together on maybe carving out a back-end deal, which is not normal for a festival, by the way, and not recommended at full swing. But if you're maxed on capacities, now you're, you're a hard ticket date. So there should be a margin in there that you play in that your, your headliners play in. From a management company standpoint, I mean, we've looked at our, our lineup of artists and <clears throat> some are getting, you know, individual offers, but I thought about it and I'm like, okay, well, how can we get our artists max play, but to also help all these festivals? So what we're doing is we're literally doing a festival package. So it's a three and a half hour long show. We use one band backing all of the artists. It brings down costs on accommodation, transportation, 
ban costs. And it, so it brings down all the costs for the festival, but they have a three and a half hours <clears throat> show that they can actually now go and sell to people. Our artists make more because they're not covering off individually, each a tour manager, each a band, each their own, you know, mm. flights and everything else. Again, it's just rethinking how we're going to rebuild as an entire society. Wow. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. The Impact Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Cartavera. Cartavera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, resources, events, and a community to help you grow. At Cartavera, we believe that you can't grow a business bigger than you, that your company is limited by your growth. We blend personal growth with leadership, team, and business growth to give you a single place to grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. You can find out more at cartavera.com. Welcome back. Well, let, let's, let me ask you a question, Billy Joe, because some people are listening, including me, saying, that sounds fantastic, and everything you describe is about the music industry and festivals. So can you do some sort of translation to say, that's what we did in the music business, but what are the actual shifts in mind that, that anybody could use those same shifts in whatever their business is? Like, what was driving those shifts to reach these different kind of outcomes? Absolutely. So I think it's, it's all transferable. I'm using my industry as an example, but we also have the promotions company. So one of our big things that I looked at was, okay, marketing. Well, there's a lot of big marketing firms out there, and I'm sure a lot of people have gotten quotes from them and building brands and graphic designers and all these things. And, you know, if you're lucky, it's probably coming in at $100,000 and you can do a short little video and you've got a great little brand booklet and you've got all these wonderful things and a tone of voice and a new website. Great. There you go. Again, not sustainable because <laughs> our economy for that entrepreneur that was maybe waitressing three jobs that was thinking their money into building this business and being able to do that they don't have that anymore so now they have to bootstrap it so let's take what we're we just talked about in the music business and put it into like a marketing business so now i have all these great creatives from the entertainment space so web developers graphic designers copywriters videographers producers and I went through and said, guys, what's your, you know, what do you need to make to make this make sense on an hourly basis? How does it work? We've taken all of that, packaged it up, and then now we're building an online course to teach entrepreneurs how to actually bootstrap a launch of their own business and then to turn it into an online course to sell worldwide and not just individually. And that entire course and that entire program will be under a $4,000 investment based on all of the expertise that I have from all of the people that work with me. How did I do it? By going in and offering them a share of the profits of how many courses we can actually sell on this so that we can have a much larger worldwide impact on entrepreneurship <laughs> versus just working one-on-one -on -one with clients and charging 25 grand to go in and work with them. So that's really interesting. How, what's the, how does somebody get to that? That's something that a lot of my clients would be interested in. Uh, how do they get to building something like this? Or? No, no. So how, how would they connect with you on that particular offering? Yeah. So they can reach out to me at thepromotionsco.com. Okay. And so we have a, a multitude of things. Here's the thing. No business fits one model. That's just not going to work. If you stuck on camera, don't go on camera. Right. If you're not comfortable in conversations, don't do a podcast. 
If you're a right. writer, don't start a blog. This is all very natural things. But what, what I found with a lot of entrepreneurs is they look at, okay, marketing, online, course, podcast, video series, IGTV, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitch, Twitter, Thinkific, online, all of this stuff, it's just so overwhelming. So you look at it and you're like, oh my God, I don't even know where to start. So you're paralyzed before you can even begin. So it's actually not that hard. And there are so many great free resources online to like using something like Calendly. That's basically like an assistant that can go through and automate all that stuff. So you don't have to hire an assistant. But Calendly hires employees. So you can feel good about that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But because some people like us actually pay. (laughs) So it's really like taking um, a lot of things that can be automated, putting that in and then taking your concept based on your values, what works for you as a person, putting it into a content plan and then using things like SEO. And again, there's a lot of great programs out there that will teach you how to actually cap- capture your ideal customer avatar to come in, create a free offering that'll put them through your system, which then will get them on your mailing list, which then you can sell to them. And these are all things that you can do without even doing an ad spend. And it's all about creating that proper, you know, copy calendar, going off of the copy calendar, figuring it out exactly what people are Googling so you can strategically put your headlines the way that they need to go, then going through and batching your content. So when life gets busy, because it does, it's still running, using the automated tools to put all that stuff out have the correct offering in the back end, and then just set up all of your funnels and all of your marketing if you have enough money for a digital spend so that you can set up your pixels to continue to retarget people and keep your brand working for you while you're doing the things that make you happy. It sounds very overwhelming, but it's actually not rocket science. And people spend so much money trying to do all of these different things or you know, even looking at a podcast, for example, people spend a lot of money on producing a podcast or they spend a lot of time. We have sound engineers that'll do it and it's 125 bucks and they'll go through, they'll do the entire, um, the entire episode for you. They'll release it to all the different platforms. It can go into your digital settings. So there's a lot of things that you can do. If you can't afford that, you can go and teach yourself how to use things like Odyssey and how to get your, your podcast out there. Use YouTube to your advantage. So again, Instead of going and thinking, oh man, I don't know how to do this. I need to spend so much money marketing that I have to go get all these big companies out there. We as an industry, people who understand how these certain things work, use your IP to spread to more people, to create more jobs, to create more income, to put back into the economy, to spend the money in the restaurant, to buy a festival ticket and get our ecosystem back up and running. That's my (laughs) growth. I'm I'm curious, Billy Joe, because I think this is a really critical topic that we really haven't talked about a lot. This mind shift around the e- focusing on the ecosystem versus their individual companies. Yeah, I know. I think about it a lot, and I'm curious when you were putting together the concert idea, what kind of resistance did you run into, and if you were able to overcome the resistance, what was the message? that got people's attention, that they could buy into this, I'll call it a more collaborative, eco-thinking mindset? The resistance was more so on, again, we were in a very unique position being the management company. 
But I can tell you if I had to do it to go through agents, the resistance would have been no, because this artist is worth, worth this many tickets in this marketplace. My rebuttal to that would simply be, cool, then your artist can stay home and make no money and probably <laughs> right. have to eventually get a job and you will not make any money in the long term. Yep. So pretty quick to be able to diffuse that one. The other resistance was, oh man, are the profit margins even here? Like we're, we, there's such a cap on it. You can only make X amount of money. Cool. So let's now look at this. Instead of looking at it, what we're going to have on a direct ROI of this, festival, let's look at it as a marketing tool to think differently, to do something differently, to be able to offer this and then potentially turn it into something else down the road. Let's look at this as an opportunity to work with our partners and our sponsors and really make this an intimate setting that they historically wouldn't have been able to have. Mm -hmm. So when we do get up and running, we've created now relationships, given them an experience that they were craving that they hadn't had before. And we can walk into those rooms and have much better conversations that we could before this. So it all comes down to it. I mean, production. Production is used to quoting, well, our stages are this and our hands are this. Well, great. I understand that people are used to making X amount of money, but you have the opportunity to have this either sit in your warehouse and not put any money against your lease or come out and make a portion of that money to put against your lease. It's up to you. Well, yeah, I think one of the, the shifts here as, as the person who gets engaged as a speaker Mm-hmm. I'm just hitting me home here. I mean, I know a lot of speakers yeah. and a lot of them have said to me that they are not adjusting their fees during COVID because they're still worth this much. And for me, I'm thinking, I was actually not thinking that way. But what you fine tuned for me, this idea, say someone's got does an event and they typically bring in $300,000 worth of revenue and they might pay a speaker $10,000 with $300,000 of revenue. Well, they're gonna do it differently, and now they're gonna have $150,000 in revenue. And the speaker says, I'm still worth 10. Well, you are if all you care about is your value versus how you fit into this ecosystem. And I'm wondering how this world would be different and our business world would be different if we had more people thinking about the ecosystem versus their piece of the pie within that ecosystem. It seems like it would require a, you know, coming together and being transparent about what what your finances look like as well, which is not an easy deal. It's not. But here's the thing. People don't want to be transparent about it because they have egos. Let it go. Everybody's in the boat of trying to figure something out. And there are certain people that are making a ton of money right now. Great. Then instead of, again, keeping all that knowledge to yourself and being like, I'm going to go and you know, charge people so much money for what this is. Think about, well, what if you charge them a little bit less and you restarted that economy? So going into the speaking uh, aspect of this, Jeff, it's, it's such a great example. What the speakers aren't seeing is how much money those promoters lost by going through and having to refund tickets of money that was already spent. So when you bring ticket money in, of course you have to spend it unless you have a ton of money in the bank, but regardless, that money came from somewhere and it does need to be repaid. So they probably you know, went into debt on paying for marketing. It's basically like taking a whole bunch of money and setting it on fire because you paid for marketing, you paid for upfront contractor fees, you paid for all of this. So 
think of these promoters as starting at zero. Well, if you're gonna hold your fee to $10,000 because that's your worth, cool, go for it. But if you kill the ecosystem, so now there's only four promoters out there instead of 400 promoters out there, if you get booked on all four of them, you will make $40,000 in a year and you're not going to be booked on all four of them. So you might make 10,000. So why wouldn't you then adjust your fee to be a $2,000 model, do it for 100,000 of them and turn around and actually make a profit, create a relationship, show them that you want to work with them, help them rebuild their business so that they can help you rebuild yours. Hmm. People just need to get out of the headspace of this is my value. And yes, supply and demand, 100%. That was your value pre-COVID. But there are no longer that many events that will survive it. And the ones that do, you need to work with them on figuring out what that price is so that you can rebuild the industry as a whole so that you can get back to business as normal. Without doing that, it's just not going to happen. This to me is simple, but I think there's a <laughs> profundity to it because it is not how people think. And I think I think there's this... this um, trap of people during covid saying well covid had covid is real but my value and i don't even think people realize how selfish that is i'm going to just use the word it is not just self-focused it is selfish because in doing that if i take that approach i'm saying i don't care about the ecosystem i'm going to get mine while the getting's good and if someone else doesn't get theirs hey that's capitalism. But I don't know that that is capitalism because I just, you know, I'm, I'm having this phrase now. I think right now I'm thinking of a title for this program is ecosystem leadership. <laughs> what does it mean to lead with a mindset of the ecosystem, especially during the challenging times? And if you look at history, there's so many times in history where things have just blown up. And some of the key to getting through it was the ways that people came together and do business differently, recognizing that things were different. Hmm. This is this is really amazing. You know, it, it's it's so true. It's you think of there are only you know three three times in my lifetime that I can remember where the world has stopped, people have communicated, and everyone has come together to rethink. And this is an opportunity. The first time this happened in my lifetime was 9-11. That was the first time we heard the term, the new normal, and what this is going to be. You saw people worldwide coming together to look and say, something is wrong. We need to relook at everything. Then you look at the crash of 2008. Yep. There were people that came out of that, the entire corporations that crumbled within days. But there were also a lot of really great companies that turned around and saw opportunity through collaboration to build something bigger. Yeah. Now here we are again in COVID and you have so many people sitting there thinking, we're just gonna go back. Everything <laughs> will be the same. We're gonna have these big you know, events. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna speak and make my $10,000 or I'm gonna perform and I'm gonna make my $500,000 next year. Or I'm gonna go and supply a bar at a big event and make all this money. Well, it's not going to work because everything has now changed. So we can either sit there and be the people that are naive. And that's exactly what that is. That's being naive and selfish and saying, okay, I need to make X amount because I am so mighty and great. Or you can really start to forge a new path 
start to forge new relationships by being able to be adaptable, creative, and working together to save other people's business while you're saving your own. Because there's only going to be so many that are left over at the end of this, which means that there's so much opportunity for those ones that are left over to grow, not just individually, but together. And when people aren't thinking that way, they're just being short-sighted. Yeah, we have radically cut the prices on what we're planning to launch with Cartavera over what we had originally planned specifically so that we could help people that aren't, you know, maybe the top of the the food system, right? Mm -hmm. So that anybody can become a member of Cartavera and grow themselves and, and their leadership. So that's kind of been our, our journey in this saying, who are we serving? How can we best serve them? Absolutely. And again, like looking at, you know, I look at what we're doing with the promotions code. Well, I could go out and say, yeah, you have to pay me X amount of dollars to work with you to get your business to a point where everything can be automated and you can reach a global audience. And too bad because that's what I'm worth because I've went and done and I've built multiple brands and multiple festivals and multiple artists. So pay it or don't. Or I can look at it and say, hey, here's an opportunity to be a leader of industry, a forger of doing something different, taking the knowledge that I have, putting it into a system that's actually scalable so that it's more accessible for people so that they know when they have a question about one of those things, who are they probably going to come back to or who are they going to think is the leader of that industry? Yeah. Our company, because at the end of the day, we weren't selfish and said, this is what it has to cost you. We said, hey, we're going to make this affordable and obtainable. You still have to do the work, but this is how you can scale your company and you can do it in a sustainable way. So again, yes. it's people need to really change where their heads are at and stop doing the woe is me and I'm worth this and I should right. get X, Y, and Z and start turning around and saying, man, maybe, maybe we've been doing it wrong the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's you one know, area that'll be interesting to see where I think this model, this mindset, Billy Joe would be great is with respect to Broadway. Uh, because oh, yeah. I had a conversation with someone from who performs on Broadway last month about when Broadway might come back, you know, that I have a local theater here in Tampa that I, I said, well, it'll be back quicker. And he said, it absolutely will be because your theater, how often do they sell out? And I said, not very often. So he said, your theater, probably at 50% capacity, the model works. But he said, Broadway only works with sellouts, the price mm -hmm. structure, but that assumes that everything's the same. It assumes that everybody's making the same money. It assumes that everybody's making the same money, they can't come back live until they can do sellouts. That's a ways down the road. And what might it look like if they could come together and say, let's figure out a different model for right now while we can't do sellouts. And how do we make this work so that we can be back working, we can keep the ecosystem um, fueled, and we could provide the benefit of this entertainment to our, the people that we serve. It'll be interesting mm -hmm. to see if that happens. I think this would be a great, another uh, place to bring your mindset to bear. Well, again, the, you know, I'm going to sound like Simon Sinek here, but it really, it makes sense. It's bringing, you know, what, what's the why behind your what? Why do you do what you do? Is it because you want to make money? Then if that's your number one driver, you might be in the wrong business. <laughs> Just, it's true. You know, you've got to, you've got to have these pieces. And I think, 
The other thing that people really need to focus on is, look, there's there's old school companies that do things the old school way and they they probably will until they retire or they're hitting retirement and they're like, you know what, doesn't, I don't care, I'm out, it was working anyways. But now you have, you know, Gen Z, you have millennials. They also want to take a look at what you're doing, why you're doing it, and they want to know how you're giving back. They want to know how you're building an ecosystem. They don't want to just know how you're building an ecosystem within your industry. They also want to know how are you helping your local community? What are you doing here? So, you know, I also think it's very naive for companies to think that they can build and grow without having a benevolence aspect. You need to have all of these, these pieces. And again, it's not rocket science. It's making you a human behind this business that helps other humans move forward. <laughs> Pretty hey. simple, but it sounds very <laughs> There's that theme. It, it always comes up on this podcast, getting yeah. back to more humanness and humanity. And without a plan, it just happens. So yeah. it must mean there's something going on out there and it's moving in a good direction. And hopefully, I know you'll be part of continuing that, Billy Joe. I, I appreciate all that you brought to this, uh, and mm. some of it very unexpected, which is cool. Yes. I love that. Uh, I know you mentioned your promotion site, but how do, is there anything in particular you want to promote to our listeners? And also, how do they connect with you and learn more about you or get engaged with you? Absolutely. So I'm super active on social media. So LinkedIn, if that's your platform, I'm Billy Joe Asen. Um, at Instagram, I'm at Billy Joe Asen. Uh, and obviously if you're interested in just having a phone call to see if there is a way to scale your business, if there, you know, is a way to rethink, I'm always happy to talk about anything business. You can go to promotionsco.com and right on there, you can just set up a a quick 30 minute consultation. It's not going to be salesy. I'm going to tell you if it's not going to work. Um, I'll walk you through kind of what we do. And you'll see on it, it'll be a great example. You're going to see how we use Calendly on it. That just turns around and automates the whole process and makes it great for everyone. So um, by all means, feel free to DM me or shoot me a note and we can chat about it. Fantastic, Billy Joe. We, We always end with a question for our guests. And the question I'd like to ask you today is, because I just like this one, I want you to imagine you have an opportunity to have dinner with someone living that you've never had dinner with before who do you want to have dinner with and what's the one question you're going to ask them my person living that i would want to have dinner with would be oprah winfrey and the question i would ask her would be what is the one piece of advice you have for anyone trying to make the impossible possible (laughs) nice i love that Step-by-step action. She, you know, it's interesting. I have a, I have a coach of mine, an executive coach, and he actually helped her form the love brand Mm. when she was 32 years old, I believe. And she had just went through this horrible um, episode where she had, it was one of those like, Hey, your husband's cheated on you with your best friend. And she just felt like a horrible person. And from there, they came up with the love brand that she would only do something out of love. And and I just find her story, mm. I know she's Oprah, so people are like, eh, it's still an original, Billy. But <laughs> her it's probably the first of, time we've had Oprah on as uh, listed there. Oh, yep, really? Well, her story of literally coming from nothing, oh, yeah. being you know, a female, a black female, doing these impossible things, and then going and starting her own network and just 
yeah. man, what she's went through. And it, it's all great to say when you look at it and you're like, you're Oprah though. Well, Oprah <laughs> wasn't always Oprah. There was a lot in the road in between. And there's, there's gotta be something in there where she, she was doing something that she learned how to make the impossible possible. And yeah. you know, it, it's totally, totally doable for everyone. So I'm going to ask a, a different question. What, what is one song that you would pull out and say, this is, this is like the song that helps me, you know, rethink things. Oh, well, it depends what mood I'm in. Okay. So if I'm so extreme mud fest, which is our, and, and are you going to sing it for us? No. Um, <laughs> so Darn. extreme mud fest which is our big mud and music festival it's like 16 uh -huh. extreme motorsports classes like we have rock crawlers jumping over buses and uh, <laughs> i just it's so much fun and it's just such a badass event that when i hear <laughs> someone say we can't do something or you know i'm really like okay i'm amped up to do something different and build this differently I will play Let's Start a Riot by Three Days Grace. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Or if I'm like literally like someone's, that's not even just with Mudfest. If someone's basically said to me like, nope, not going to happen. You can't do it. I'm like, cool. Why don't you watch me? And I'll give you <laughs> uh, So that would be one. And then another one that I really, really love when I'm just having one of those moments of, just being defeated and being like, what am I doing? Cause we all, it doesn't matter what level of your career you're at. You have those days. I have them a lot. Girl Going Nowhere by Ashley McBride is one of my favorite <laughs> songs. It is just about coming from a small town and people saying it wasn't possible. And, you know, then coming back and talking about, well, we heard your song on the radio. So we want to be a part of it now. And it just, it's a really, really pretty, uh, I don't know. It's just one of those songs that puts me in the headspace of cool. Well, again, watch it happen. I, I think there's so many interesting emotions that people go through in entrepreneurship yes. or entrepreneurship uh, that they never really talk about and they don't really uh, want to express because of ego and they don't want to come out looking weak or unprofessional or not like they're the leader. And I just think that that is so backwards that we it's not all the smooth have ride. pardon it's not the smooth ride no and we all have so many people that tell us that we're crazy all the time you kind of have <laughs> to be crazy to do it yeah. so you know being able to kind of sit in those moments and be like yeah what what amps you up what's the song that gets you to the point where you can kind of throw up the middle finger and say well fuck it i'm gonna do it anyways sorry i just swore on your show <laughs> you're not the first no. Nope. I'm Canadian. We'll I use that as an excuse. <laughs> for a lot. Well, thank you, Billy Joe. Thanks for being here and sharing a very unique perspective on leadership and entrepreneurship. Absolutely. Definitely gave me some food for thought. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been so nice to get to know you. <laughs> yeah, likewise. If you like this podcast, you'll love the Cartevera Tribe. The Cartevera Tribe is a community of growth-committed leaders who want to connect, engage, and grow themselves, their people, and their businesses. Cartevera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, assessments, and events to challenge you and help you grow. 
And the Cartavera Tribe is a membership like none other. You'll get live access to Craig and Jeff where you can ask questions, as well as masterminds where you can get answers from other leaders who've already solved your greatest challenges. You'll have access to additional interviews and a variety of courses, tools, and resources to help you achieve your biggest goals. We have monthly game days where we have challenges and competitive games to help you grow your leadership capabilities. And you'll get a personal growth Sherpa who will guide you to help you reach your growth goals. To find out more, go to cartavera.com. That's C-A-R-D-I-V-E-R-A.com. See you on the inside. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep. Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, right. <laughs>